I'm Megan. I'm Tegan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tegan. Hey, Megan. How are you? You know, we were talking a little bit before this. Today, our episode is safety training. And I think last week we said we had maybe hit the pinnacle of our podcast in terms of how much we had to say about an episode. This week, I think we've bottomed out. I yeah. think we hit that top and we like completely then crashed down a hill. I, I think we might be able to do this in 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. We flew too close to the sun. <laughs> we and, did. Uh, well, and also this one, like I was like, oh, man, like everything I've had to say about gender, I've already said. So, <laughs> you know, what, what is there for me in this episode? Anyway, yeah, I agree. Uh, and yet I enjoyed it. It made me laugh. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. It did. It makes this one makes me laugh too out loud in several places, but with little to say. So let me predict that maybe this episode is going to be like, remember that thing? That was funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm here for that. We haven't had one of those in a while. Last episode was yeah. intense. It's nice to have a, hey, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, we do have messages in our. Uh, inbox. So should we head over to the receptionist's corner? Yes, let's do it. I'm just saying every every week you have a slightly different name for it. What is it called? I call it, oh, Pam's Corner Receptionist Desk, Receptionist Corner. What is yeah, it? Called? Always, it's one of the three. <laughs> Any one what do of you them. call it? What do you think officially yeah, it should be? I like Receptionist Desk, but I also like it that I can never predict exactly what you're going to call it receptionist desk receptionist desk it's gonna be in my head all right I don't know where <laughs> I don't know where I came up with these other ones I'm so sorry <laughs> um okay well uh I'll start out with this uh message that we got from Teal um hi Tegan and Megan Tegan just want to say how grateful I am that you are so open about your gender journey and how much I resonated with literally everything you said. Thank you for being that for me. It's so validating to hear someone talk about it as I'm experiencing it and not feel alone. Oh, that means so much to me, Teal. Reading this, like, I don't know, I definitely started to tear up and it just is, yeah, I'm totally there with you. And um, yeah, and I'm just, it's it's cool that we're in this together. Um, Teal continues, also, as I texted Megan while listening, your trans reading of this episode 100% made me want to watch this one. Stay tuned if I actually do. Uh, <laughs> we're going to need an update. We need to know. Uh, we should have like a, a, a like a clock or something. Did Teal watch this episode? You know, it's like yeah, a, that's, a, that's a good question. This is a I'd be curious if this is a wider demographic of listeners or if it is a group of one that listens and does not watch the show. Yeah. If you are a listener and you've never written in, this is your chance, you know, just, you can just write us. You don't even have to ask a question. You can say, don't read this on pod, but you want to introduce yourselves and let us know that uh, you actually, what, how you listen, whatever. I don't know. We'd love to, we'd love to know who listens. So uh, anyway, the best office hours podcast at gmail.com is the, um, uh, address. But continuing on, supply shelf question as promised. Ooh, How do you all prefer? Gotta walk, over, gotta walk over to the supply shelf. Oh, crap. Okay. All right. Let's go to the supply shelf. That's a good transition noise. I like that. Supply shelf question as promised. How do you all prefer to organize your papers? A paper adjacent question. 
but paper organization is a real thing, especially for professors, and I like to be organized, looking for advice, unless everyone does everything online now, question mark. But knowing Megan and her post-it notes, I highly doubt that. Um, and then I'll just read right. the end, and then we can talk about the mm -hmm. supply shelf question. Uh, Teal uh, finishes, thanks so much, uh, or thanks for being such a light in my weeks and a safe place for me to process gender even though that's not at all what I thought this podcast would be when I started listening. <laughs> I'm obsessed with y'all and this podcast, Teal. Uh, neither did I, Teal. I didn't see it coming. Um, and here we are. Uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Who knew, who knew that this podcast where we get into absurd readings of this show could be meaningful to anyone? What an absolutely delightful surprise. Although I have to say, you, Tegan, really took it to being a meaningful podcast. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into the supply shelf question. Yeah. Do you, how do you organize your papers? Um, yeah. And so what's your system? Let's break down this question a little bit. I mean, do we mean kind of papers like all of our files, do you think? Does this mean our essays when we're writing them? Does this mean our teaching papers? Oh, this is great. Uh I think it means I think Teal wants to deep dive into all of those things. And I'll I'll just say that I have I have controversial opinion. Well, no, I don't have controversial opinions. I have controversial practices. So yeah, um, yeah where do you want to start with your why don't we start with your like teaching papers? Okay, teaching papers. I have a very robust system, I would say, for organizing my teaching things. I do have to have it on paper. I can't do it all online. So I always, I type and I print out my class notes and I organize them into white binders. So in my office, I've got this shelf that is all my white binders and shout out to another listener who is a former student. Um, they will know who they are. Someone who was very interested in my binder system and would come in and like, look at them to see this. So I say this just to kind of toot my own horn a little bit that I do think this is a good system. I organize it into categories. I have class notes, I have assignments, handouts, worksheets, activities, that kind of thing, and then readings and maybe something else. Uh, but I've got it in those categories. So my teaching notes, all that stuff, that's maybe my best organized thing. It's all in binders. I am so ashamed. I have no filing system for my teaching papers whatsoever i have well that's not completely true i i have um so so i do most of my like retaining of stuff at this point now completely digitally and so like i have um like a, a a folder on my computer for every semester each class has its own folder and mm -hmm. then with that i have like you know syllabus assignments readings um handouts that kind of thing mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess in that sense, I do organize it. But like, there are a lot of like, I'll print out readings, you know, and like take notes on them and then like throw them out at the end of the semester, which is insane. What? Uh, that is insane. Totally insane. And you annotate it and then throw it out. Yeah, I know. I don't. What the fuck? Um, I, oh, I, I know. <laughs> and so I, I know. I um, That's so weird. I know. I feel so embarrassed about this, but although I, I mean, like, it's actually better because at some point you become a hoarder and you've got way too many things that you won't go back and read. And I have too many readings that I've annotated before 
things from graduate school, things from undergrad, where I'm like, I might consult this again. And I am not going to consult it again. So I think you're better off in that way. I just found that if I don't reread it to some degree or re-skim it or whatever, like I won't understand what my notes were in the first place. And then the amount of time to take really good notes it, at the t I don't know. I, it's like a short term, long term thing. Um, anyway. Just I yeah, so I I don't do a great job of keeping uh, uh, keeping archives anymore. Um, but I and and even when I have these files with like handouts and and readings and stuff like that, I often find myself remaking like assignments anyway. You know, because it's like, oh, this is the prompt I want to write now or whatever. And I do get to reteach some classes, but not as many as one might think. And um, so it's just anyway. It's not an efficient system, but for me, it's all about like folders, subfolders, and increasingly I like doing it in Google Drive. So I've got like a folder for the semester and then I have like folders for slides and things like that. Um, so, I've got to think, you've yeah. actually, as critical as I was of your system of throwing things away at the beginning, I know I took issue with that, but it's making me think I probably should do that too, because I never just pull the same class notes I always even if I use some of the same things I always change it and I always change the assignments but I think it's that I like to be able to go back and see because I'll add notes to my notes like smart this worked this didn't work stuff like that but so the readings and I have to I don't remember the readings I always have to reread everything even if I've read it a bunch of times before but your notes aren't helpful to you I don't I don't I'm such a fucking idiot I I know I I don't, I, well, but here's the thing. All right. So to move to like uh, normal papers in general, when I was in graduate school, I had filing boxes and I would move them with me from place to place. And I would have folder, like file folders and we, and they were color coded and labeled. And within those, I had every reading for every class. I mm -hmm. have every reading for every um, like project I was working on. I had, you know, just an insane careful filing system and I just never consulted any of that shit and over the years I would just move it and move it and then like eventually you know purged it and was like okay what am I doing you know so yeah I don't know I feel bad about it but also am like well uh, I'm gonna want to delete all of this from the podcast because it's like one of my great sources of shame equally too for my orals like I remember taking insane number of notes for each book that I read, like I'm talking like 20 index cards. And then I would consolidate those 20 index cards into like one index card. And then I would like review that index card for the orals exam and stuff like that. And it's like all of that stuff, I would go back and I was like, this is nonsense. Like, because my process of taking notes is not actually very good, hmm. I think. I don't know. Like, how do you take notes? This is so boring. It must be so boring. <laughs> well, do you have an organized note system? I do, I guess. I think that might, I don't know. I feel like that I might go too far. I feel like I'm going to end up talking about that for too long. But let me just say, I think that you are really taking us back to Ryan's dilemma when he gets in the office Olympics, he gets the bronze medal, I believe, yes. yogurt lid. And he's like, how long am I going to hang on to this? Do I let it sit on my desk for two weeks and then throw it away? Or do I throw it away now? And I think I'm making the mistake of keeping it for 20 years and then being like, well, I should probably throw it away now. And you just had it cleared out of your life to begin with. 
and all these things can be accessed. I mean, with the internet, it's different, even very different from when we were in college, how much stuff you can access. Like I can get any of that stuff again. If I ever decide I want to read that random article. Right. Yeah. That's me. I think actually you've won this. This is not the direction I saw this going. I will say for essays, I have a very meticulous Mm. system, but it is a bizarre system. But like for every essay I write, you know, there's like a folder and then that folder is broken up into different sections. But like the main, I write my documents between the, there's the main draft. I have a file called work through. I have Mm -hmm. a file called holding and I'm (gasps) a file called cuts. And so like I'll generate material and then like place it all into holding and then move a paragraph over into work through and then like as and so that I'm only looking at one paragraph at a time and then as right as I polish that to a place where I'm like happy with it I move it into the draft and then like and then cuts are like things that I'm not gonna use but like I can't delete but also just in case I need to go back and search for it and so then So that's how I write any essay. But then within the folder, like, so I have folders that are holding for the project. So it's like, here's all these articles or potential things that I might use, um, that kind of thing. Anyway, so I I have a bunch of, but that is all digital at this point now for me. Um, This is riveting. (laughs) Is it? I don't know. How do you do it? How do you organize? This is is none of, Teal's question was all about paper. I really um, like this. Well, I can talk about it on on paper. I do. So I like to go through my drafts and I have to print them because yeah. I just can't see them or get my head around them otherwise or how the pieces fit together. So let me just give one recommendation for when you're writing and editing your own writing. I like to print it two pages per sheet and double-sided, but the two pages per sheet is where it makes it lay out like a book. you've got like the two it's like the pages then horizontal and the two pages are vertical next to it so it looks like a book it just helps you see more at the same time if the small font size doesn't bother you and so that's what I like to do this takes us back to our pilot precise v5s because I like to go through it with the v5s but I do just stack up I save the drafts as I go through them and then it's really satisfying to have this thick pile of the whole process that you went through I always dreamed of being somebody who would like take such good notes and such keep such great records that I could just show up for a class and be like, boom, like I don't have to ever prep basically. And I've never become that person. And then same with the essay. I always imagine like a cleaner system of like, I'd read an article. Here's my like two, here's my like, you know, two sentence paraphrase and my two quotes. I feel like I'm much more um, free associating. <laughs> I don't mean to crush your dreams, but I don't think that in our field that works. I think that thing only works if you're, if you have the kind of class and the kind of content where you're really just lecturing right. set material and information, like you're conveying information that doesn't change and it really is lecture. I think that's the only way that that works. So I don't mean to stomp on your dreams, but I think that's kind of a dumb dream i did you're never gonna get that like you're just you're not in the right field i think that's the thing you're definitely not in the right field and i also don't have the right job for it like or i mean and i don't teach that way yeah like my teaching is very like yeah 
Socratic and discussion-based. And so it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely had professors in grad school who were like, yeah, here are my notes. And I've read mm -hmm. them to students for many, many years. And they would just like, it was the yellow manila folders. I used to write on those yellow or not manila, um, but the yellow yeah. legal pad. I love the legal pad. Yeah. Um, but I also take notes during class. And then I feel like those just get thrown out. <laughs> like I take detailed notes on what students are saying uh -huh. and noting like who's next to talk and all of this. I've got people in the queue and then I like throw that stuff out like within a week. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I do. Why even take it in the first place? Because it's the process. It's for you to track and, and engage during the conversation. I would be curious what Teal does with notes, but although maybe maybe they can't say just because um, uh, therapy, right? Like there's yeah. probably a system there. All right. I think we got to stop <laughs> too long on paper. All right. We will come back to it another time. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, so we do have one more message. Uh, and so we will need to go backwards to Pam's desk. No. What's it called? No, receptionist desk. <laughs> and uh, I, that's a, that's the fourth title I've given it now. Anyway, back it over to the receptionist desk. We have one more message. Okay. You want me to read this one? Sure. Okay. Hi, Tegan and Megan. Your discussion of werewolves during business school episode. Uh, sorry, I'm struggling to read. Let me start that again. Your discussion of werewolves during your business school episode hit home with me. As a kid and teenager, I was underwhelmed by werewolf movies. However, years later, I was impressed by an American werewolf in London. I'd love to hear your thoughts if you've seen it. All-inclusive, Eric. Oh, Eric, it's so good to hear from you again. Yes, thank you for this question. And I, I think we probably know who this was maybe a little more directed toward. Hey. Uh, <laughs> As well, a deeper knowledge. I have seen American Werewolf in London. I've even taught American Werewolf in London in my horror film class uh because You're the perfect person for this question yeah well and i also teach there's a clip of it that i i kind of wanted to make you watch but i don't think you would enjoy so i'm not going to make you watch it but um i teach a clip of it in my just intro to film class when i'm teaching students about um special effects and practical effects and so to answer your question eric um yeah i think that film is fantastic and i've really had to eat crow or whatever the saying is about the um uh, about this werewolf question because he's coming after you <laughs> yeah and also and i like i'm like why did i say this you know random opinion um but i i just you know, I keep forgetting like, oh yeah, there's that one. There's, I do like this. I do like that or whatever, but I'm glad that Eric agrees that like, just kind of overall, the genre is kind of underwhelming, but yeah. American Werewolf in London has to be like one of the best, if not the best. And what makes it so interesting is it kind of blends comedy and horror in a really interesting way. And it has these incredible special effects that are all practical and there's a really famous scene where the guy. Wait, what does it mean for special effects to be practical? Oh, okay. Uh, so it's like nowadays people use um, CGI, computer generated oh, yeah. imagery, mm -hmm. to do like a a person, a human transforming into a wolf. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, like in the '80s or earlier, um, it would be like all effects that are real you know what i mean they're oh, not it's yeah not, okay like the makeup and stuff like that yeah so it's all done through um yeah practical means so lighting 
makeup, prosthetics, uh, um, what, what else? What, what I'm trying to like puppetry, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I miss that stuff because it looks so, even if it doesn't look quote unquote real, it has a tactility and a tangibility that I mm. think CGI doesn't have. This is probably not a controversial opinion. But anyway, uh, I think I'm going to, I'll send you the clip and you can watch it and maybe report back next time. But okay. the transformation scene, if anybody has never seen American Werewolf in London, you can just look up American Werewolf in London, like transformation scene, and it will come up because it's very, very famous. I'm pretty sure it won um, like the, some Academy Award for makeup or effects design, something like that, because um, it's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Those are my thoughts. I totally agree with you, Eric. Uh, great one. Um, I have seen the sequel and it was not great. Um, that's American Werewolf in Paris. Uh, and I it came out in the 90s and I saw that first before I saw Amer American Werewolf in London. I was like, this is no good. Um, so if anybody's out there, make sure to watch the original one, uh, which is from 1981. Uh, okay, so the American Werewolf series should have quit while it was ahead. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking it up right now. It was the first ever Academy Award for Best Makeup. Um, hmm. okay. and, and the makeup really is stunning. The, what's cool, one last thing, just to nerd out. What's cool about the transformation scene is it's done in full light. So it's not hidden oh. shadows and darkness. Um, yeah. And it has this, it's a good example of, of um, kind of ironic, like the music is very upbeat and happy and the uh, what's happening to this guy's body is, is kind of terrifying. Are you looking up images of it? Cause your face looks disgusted. <laughs> you know me too well i'm having I, i'm having some thoughts about it um uh oh i just wanted to make note of i really appreciated eric's word choice underwhelmed because i love the idea of a kid being underwhelmed by something i think that's just great it's so good i think i would also find this not so much underwhelming as very unsettling on maybe a number of levels first is this sylvester stallone who's in this movie no are you there's just facing that on the dude's face yes there's this one picture where he's shirtless and he's looking to the side at what is maybe his hand i i can see what you're saying but it's not uh no the uh, david naughton is the lead i think oh okay Everything done john woodvine yeah, yeah I, no it's not okay. sylvester stallone but maybe maybe so it's similar haircut, you know, white dudes in the, in kind the of that kind era. Of I don't know. But so we've got, there's lots of images of this werewolf. There's one where he's got his mouth open over a guy's neck and mm -hmm. his teeth are all bloody. It's really digging in. I can tell I, you, I'm definitely not going to watch this. Um, I'll just, I'm going to make a quick plug. There's a, uh, before we move on. So uh, my partner, Jen, um, is doing a podcast for Halloween. Um, uh, and I think the title is Harry and Jen ruin someone's day or something like that. Oh. And I'll, I'll post a link or, or whatever. Um, I'll find the exact thing, but the premise of the podcast is the two of them are both diehard horror fans. They watch and discuss a horror film with someone who hates horror. And I have absolutely been like, you've got to get Megan on your podcast <laughs> because 
she hates horror and it would be so much fun to hear her take and just the 30 seconds of you just being like oh my god is just delightful <laughs> okay well i will watch the clip that you're going to send me okay and i'll report back all right so why don't we get into the episode we are at season three episode 20 safety training why don't you read our summary for us Tegan? Okay, Andy returns from anger management classes. Michael stages a stunt to illustrate the dangers of the modern office. Okay, there it is. That's the plot. Yeah. Andy returns. Michael stages a stunt. Where should we get into this thing? I guess um, our initial impression, we're, we're not like, well, we think this one is funny, but we don't feel super into it. Yeah. I guess I would say that I just don't feel like I have a lot of like interesting analysis or commentary, but yeah. I also thought, I don't know. I remember, you know, vaguely this episode or something and, and maybe I thought it was like funnier or whatever, but I laughed a lot during it. It just, yeah. Yeah. It just You know, it's like, a, I felt I, my thoughts were like, this is a good bread and butter. This mm -hmm. I was at the end of it. I was like, that was an episode of the office. Nice. Like mm -hmm. that was an episode. Um, that was an episode. Yeah. Yeah, it I was. The beginning is a good example of like one of the problems for me is like okay. the cold open isn't really a cold open. In my opinion, it kind of, you know, like drags on for too long and it doesn't really have a meaningful stop. Um, and yeah, everything yeah. in it is kind of funny. Like I mm -hmm. like Andy coming back and him asking to be called Drew um i like the flashback uh i thought that jim was a real dick for being like no i'm not gonna call you that i was like what the hell um yeah i actually was... i wanted to i wanted to ask you about that what your i didn't was. like that at all but i loved andy's response i can't control what you do i can only control what i do yes he's uh, definitely gotten some tools from his anger management you know the the shunning andy bernard and then i guess we basically and with Jim being Jim being the go-between, right? He's like, you know, Dwight is saying, tell him this. And mm -hmm. I just felt like there were too many bits uh, for yeah. the Yeah, but- That's a good point. It doesn't have that feeling. Because on the one hand, it is separate from the episode that's about the safety stuff. But often, I think the best, the best cold opens that we really like are often- have some kind of resonance with the main episode, but are really separate and they don't need to accomplish anything. So when Michael does magic, for example, when he does the straitjacket thing, that doesn't have to accomplish something. It doesn't have to inform us, but this feels more like necessary exposition sort of because Andy's been gone. And so we have to know and be reminded, okay, Andy's back. There's the flashback where he explained several weeks ago, Andy Bernard had an incident and then it cuts to the image of Andy punching a hole in a wall, which is always funny to see. And then he explains, but after five weeks in anger management, I'm back and I've got a new attitude and a new name and a bunch of new techniques for dealing with the grumpies. So it feels like in that, in bringing Andy back, there's kind of too much on it that it has to accomplish and it has to inform us of that it loses some of yeah. the, the charm. Of a great opening. Is this like an unusual thing? Have we seen flashbacks before? 
Not many. I mean, they do it with the Jim and Pam kiss, but that one also feels different. Um, there are some things, gosh, I'm trying to think. That's a good question. When are there flashbacks? I'd say not a lot of them, but hmm. It's interesting when we follow, like we followed Andy to the anger management like clinic or whatever. And I really like that scene where he meets the woman because he's like, I'm going to, it's going to be over in X number of weeks and I'm going to do it faster through like positive mirroring and name recognition and so like yes it's just interesting they never took us to the plate like we never went inside we don't see it like it's really mainly we leave the office <laughs> primarily with michael right like he's mm -hmm. he's our window into the outside world and um so it's mm. just interesting we have this person who's left and now come back um which is also a kind of unusual although no it's not we have precedent with oscar on the show um when he go when he's gone out supposedly because he's sick and then Dwight goes and catches him no I was thinking has it what didn't he like get oh, a out yeah 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 Sorry, I was thinking of the thing like with Michael you were saying where like we go out with him and we really see yeah but he was out for a while um it's just interesting yeah I think you're right like there's some it has to do some narrative work that uh, that normally the show isn't doing and maybe that's why it feels a little shaggy to me um but what did you think of the gym dynamic because he's the he's the the mediator between well he I mean, he plays off andy and then he mediates between jim and toy i mean handy yeah. yeah yeah so i thought I, I wanted i was gonna ask so i think you've already answered this but i was gonna ask you when Andy comes in and he says, morning, Jim. And Jim says, hey, Andy, how are you, man? And Andy says, good, Drew. Jim, what's that? Andy, Drew, you can call me Drew. And then Jim just says, no, I'm not going to call you that. And then goes back to calling him Andy. And would, so I was going to ask you, would you go Jim's route? Would you refuse to call him Andy or would you call him Drew? You seem to already answer you would definitely go with Drew. Definitely. But here's what I want to know. Are there exceptions where you think when someone comes in with a different name, you actually should just say, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, or I think you always 100% have to do it. And like no type of per there's no type of person, no type of scenario like Andy's where it's <laughs> like not too ridiculous or something where you refuse it. I would say. Uh, the first instance that comes to mind that I would refuse would be if somebody gave themselves a nickname and mm -hmm. said, like, oh, Pete, you have to call me Big Dog now or whatever it is. I don't uh -huh. know. Something uh -huh. like that. And uh, I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> yeah. Tuna or whatever he calls Jim. Um, yeah, because is Drew basically his call me Big Dog? I don't know. I mean, but it's just a part of his name. It is a part of his name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But it, it did strike me as like, wow, we're in a different, it's a different thing. It signifies a different thing now. Somebody comes in and says like, I want my name to be X. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, like, cool, whatever. Um, but that's a really recent and still perhaps contested, but, you know, it, far more accepted thing. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting to think of like, what would this joke have signified? Because it doesn't, it's not at the time that it signified as like, oh, Jim's denying Andy's like 
autonomy or his self-determination or whatever. So yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to see too those different classifications of a name change. So if it's about gender and if it's about that sense of identification versus his, you know, I'm coming out of anger management and I'm a new man. Um it is interesting to see this different classification and kind of a different reasoning behind a different name. And yeah, I get, cause it did, it does feel like Andy here, honestly, is being kind of annoying. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, he just. I felt bad for him. He's, I think he's being too much in the scene. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> His things like, I don't know. He kind of has, he's equipped with all of his, and I know sometimes you need these things in your life, but I've got a new attitude and I've got a bunch of new techniques for dealing with the grumpies. I think, you know what it is? I think he lost me when he said he has new techniques for dealing with the grumpies. I found that to be a very off-putting sentence. That made me laugh, but I I feel like you're a person who would not like a phrase like grumpies or a, a Yes. Yes. Like I don't like a cutesy version of just say like a bunch of new techniques for dealing with anger fine for dealing with the grumpies now i'm i'm furious i have a can't go along with you i have a question actually about this i was it's a philosophical question i guess in a way um but it's one that i've been thinking about a lot over the last year uh and i don't remember that we talked about it when andy hit the wall so i thought maybe since we get a flashback to it, I can ask you now. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I suppose instead of calling it anger, I could call it grumpiness. But um, do you believe that anger is always like a secondary emotion? That it, it is that underneath it is usually like some kind of like or the, the theory here would be like underneath anger is like hurt, woundedness, fear, um, hmm. some more primal. Uh, threat or or um vulnerability and so anger is like a secondary reaction that lashes out or is a defense um as opposed to but like that means then that like or it seems to imply that any interpretation of someone's anger would always sort of see it as yeah like a reaction formation or whatever rather than um i don't know some other reading of anger as like um yeah i don't know more visceral or direct or or um even primal in its own right that's an amazing question i feel like in a well first of all i will speak without sufficient knowledge because this feels like something where i'd have to go out and read a bunch of things and i'd want to really think about it it's really a thought-provoking question i i feel like in a lot of cases yes that there is you said hurt and woundedness and fear or some form of vulnerability that is underneath anger. But at the same time, I think there, there can also be cases where it's like the reverse, like where there's anger underneath, but that is manifest as sadness or mm -hmm. as despair or as something like that. So I, I feel like there's potential for those layers to be different. And I guess maybe what I would see as a potential problem as saying how did you describe it? Secondary emotion? Yeah. A problem maybe of saying yeah. that it's, that's always the case is that it might also be a way to dismiss it. Like, yeah, 
you know, like, like there isn't really a re this isn't really about the anger. Like this isn't really about that other person, for example, who did something to you. It's really about the way you feel hurt about it. Um, so I wonder if it, if, if in saying it's always secondary, it might take away that component. Yeah, I think that that's, it, it, I think the reason this came up for me was in a conversation with a friend who was dealing with a partner and anyway like there was a kind of way in which within i'm trying to be as vague as possible but anyway like within their conversations or processing this kind of one person thinking that basically like anger itself is almost like an illegitimate emotion or like hmm. it's always a it's not it's like not useful in any in its own right or on its own terms. And so the best that it can, the best way to approach it is to basically like quell and then understand, you know, understand the actual thing that's motivating it. But mm. the other person then felt that that was a way of dismissing like the kind of legitimacy or the reality of their experience of anger. Um, but yeah. maybe maybe this is like a, distinction not a difference or so whatever you'd call it you know um I don't in know. that in that example though I that does strike me as being very dismissive and is like taking away the the validity and the strength and the necessity of anger in a lot of situations yeah it's interesting so what Andy's anger about so Andy punched the hole in the wall after Jim hid his phone in the ceiling. Right. And he was like calling it repeatedly, playing his rock and robin ringtone that he recorded himself. And so Jim just drove him to a point of madness in all of its forms. And he punched the wall. So what do you think of that case of anger? Well, I do, I mean, I, I guess uh yeah, I guess it is an example of like, I mean, under what do we know about Andy? Like, is his desire to be like sort of liked and and mm -hmm. um so he was feeling humiliated and and frustrated, uh and so lashed out, you know, right? Like I guess yeah. like, reaches his breaking point. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I keep thinking though, as you were talking, I was like, oh right, Jim was the one who caused that. So yeah. it makes sense to a degree, like Jim is still tormenting him, which makes mm -hmm. me wonder, is Jim angry at Andy specifically mm. because An we, uh, the initial cause was that Andy was being annoying, singing his um, acapella stuff into his phone. But also Andy was like, you know, uh, uh, called him big tuna and like didn't respect Jim's name. So maybe it makes sense that Jim is like, no, I'm not going to call you that, like, because you never called me by my name. Um, yeah, yeah. This would go back to the, we've talked about pranking as flirting, but like pranking also has this aggression or antagonism. Yeah. And I wonder if this is like how Jim is expressing his resentment or whatever, his revenge. Yeah. And maybe that sets up another dynamic in this episode, which I was wondering if you thought was funny or not, which is shun, unshun. Um, because I guess Dwight is angry at Andy, but I can't remember why. Why is Dwight angry at Andy? That's a good question. Wait a second. Also, 
in terms of the timing and the sequence of this thing, this is just reminding me at the very end of the last episode, Andy walks in and Dwight pepper sprays him. Oh, right. Yeah. So is this like he's come in once he's brought in his stuff, but then the beginning of this episode, it's like he's introducing himself to Pam. I guess, is it just that when he got immediately pepper sprayed, he didn't get to do that. And this is like a retake. It's a little weird that way. In That's terms a of great point. One, one thing I just want to jump back to quickly is that, that you made me think about is the relationship between annoyance and anger. Mm. So Andy is being really, really annoying and so where is that? And is there a difference between the feeling of being annoyed and being angry? Is it a spectrum? Does it at one point go from being annoyed to where then it snaps into rage? I don't know. But Andy does seem like a good test case to put people through that. Uh, Dwight, the shun and unshun. I enjoyed that. It feel It does feel like it, he describes it as an Amish tradition, I believe. It does feel like something that uh, would be a familiar tactic for Dwight. I was wondering, what do you make of shunning as a workplace strategy? Like, is there anyone you would like to shun? <laughs> would it make your life easier to be able to be like Dwight? Uh, I don't know. No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I thought, it, well, first, I have just watched uh, the most recent Paranormal Activity movie, which is called Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. And it takes place in an Amish community. And like shunning is a key plot point in the film. Mm. Um, and uh, so anyway, if anybody is interested in in like a, I, I don't think it was very good, but it was really fun to watch. Um, so, but it was just funny because I watched that like yesterday and then watching this was like, mm. oh, all right, Office is relevant for me. Um, but uh, as a strategy, I don't know. I mean, Dwight doesn't really practice it very well. Like to some degree, I think Angela's better at shunning everybody. Like she just literally minds her own business, does her own thing. Whereas yeah. Dwight is like has to announce his shunning and then constantly is going yeah. up and down like a window, uh, which made me laugh. I just thought it was really funny. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting test case of shunning because you're like, under what conditions can you actually do it? And how could you, like, how do you actually shun someone at work when you need their services? Like, he needs Andy's services. Right. And he needs right. Andy's participation. And so, um, yeah, he's not able to fully, fully carry that out. Which is, a, I do think that's kind of an interesting thing about, like, workplaces is, like, or, or collaborate, collaboration has the potential or, like, to some degree we need to repair relationships have to be elastic enough to enable collaboration for whatever broader goal right so like that like if the shunning or the anger or whatever gets too much then the whole thing falls apart and so there's just something interesting about the fact that he needs him kind of just by virtue of the social dynamic lessens yeah. his anger and uh uh anyway I, and i like the point when the two of them were kind of standing next to each other during the baylor presentation and Dwight forgets himself for a minute um <laughs> I thought that was so funny you know what so we've got these relationships of anger and distancing and then coming back together in some way between both Andy and Dwight and Daryl and Michael because talk about infuriating I mean Michael at Daryl's safety presentation 
is so out of hand. Let's talk about it. <laughs> here's, a, here's a question for you. I've recently heard the youth using this phrase out of pocket. Yes. <laughs> the kind of scenario in which you can say Michael's out of pocket. Like, is this out of pocket behavior? I, I believe so. I believe so. <laughs> oh, man. Such a fun line, but not yeah. one that I can use without, you know, getting a side eye. Um, okay. So they go down to the office. Michael has explained in an interview that today is safety training day. Toby is leading ours upstairs. Yuck. But I'm giving everyone a little bit of a treat. We're going to listen in on Daryl's presentation to the warehouse. And if you know Daryl, it's going to be zappity. I love Daryl's approach to this presentation. He says, now, this is the forklift. You need, Michael rattles it, you need a license to operate this machine. That means the upstairs workers can't drive it. Quiz, Mike, should you drive the Sorry, should you drive the forklift? And Michael says, I can and I have. Daryl, no, 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 no. I said, should you? You should not drive it. You should not drive the forklift. You understand? Um, I just, his handling of Michael, I really like that building in a specific and direct quiz. So he says something immediately, quiz, Mike, should you drive the forklift? I thought that that would be a hilarious teaching move if there was a particular student who was like never paying attention. This would not be an appropriate thing to do, but if you did want to kind of beat up on them a little bit to just target them in that way, quiz, Tegan, when is the next quiz or the next paper due or whatever? <laughs> uh, I just thought that was just such a funny way to call him out. But also, you know, He's right. I mean, in terms of learning, you need to quiz yourself about the information and you need to check and see. It's like a check for understanding. And he knows he really only needs to check one person for understanding. That's what was so I mean, this whole thing, hilarious. And I love the uh, interview that Daryl does after where he explains like we never made it a full year um, and then describes how Michael kicked off the ladder from under him and yelled. I did. Hey, Daryl, how's it hanging? Um, and Daryl's reading of I'm legitimately scared for my workers. I mean, it's just, it's just, yeah. and, but what's so funny about it. Yeah. It's like, it's a lesson for one, even though everybody has to be uh, participating and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael is, you know, just such a threat um, to everybody's safety because of his desire to, I don't know, like or his impulsivity, his desire to be, uh, or to see himself as capable of doing everything, anything. The whole yeah. interaction with Mid Madge uh, was really funny as well. Um, yeah, he, he calls her, he thinks her name is Pudge. Right. Which is such a weird, um, weird mistake. But when he says, guys, I'm not the only one who's driven the forklift. Pudge has driven the forklift. Um, and then Daryl, he says, okay, um, Michael says, okay, um, her. And Daryl says, her, yes, her is qualified to work a dangerous machine. You are not, okay? And then when Daryl asks him, do you understand that? We get another yeesh. Yeah, I thought of that. Uh, I thought of you there because uh, of the yeppers to yeesh yes. uh, transition. Um, Love it. So then we we shift to Toby's safety presentation. And the one uh, conceptual thing I wanted to say about this 
<clears throat> juxtaposition and the I and the episode as a whole is basically like on the one hand we have this binary that the that the episode kind of seems to play into which is that white collar work is um effeminizing and um cushy and kind of uh um yeah it, it doesn't put your body on the line there's no risk there's no danger um mm -hmm. And so we're back to our kind of gender binary, but it's a class one too, right? Because when Dwight runs into the warehouse, it's like blue collar workers, you know, whatever. So then, yeah, the the workers in the warehouse, they're the ones who are doing physical labor, moving things around um, and are, uh, yeah, at like actual physical risk. Um, but I felt that the episode, while it was using that for comedic effect, also to some degree undermined or or complicated that binary because as we discover with the bailer, for example, you need a license and there is like real intellectual knowledge that goes mm -hmm. into doing the logistical physical labor in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. Like it is oh, not just yeah. um, mindless labor, it's yeah. skilled labor. And that's the problem with like the ways in which we view, Oh, people who work in the Amazon warehouse or whatever, we can replace them by machines. It's like, no, 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 Like all labor is skilled and, and therefore should be paid much better than it is. Whereas the white collar workers are paid more and we think of them as like having no physical, Although their bodies are not online. And however, as Toby narrates it, like it's actually kind of interesting to me to like how the body of the worker, of the white collar worker becomes an issue that the corporation has to deal with. So- mm -hmm. Carpal tunnel syndrome, circulation, um, uh -huh. eye strain, uh, and depression are some of the things that come up. Oh, and heart disease. So on the one hand, right, like there is a joke here, right? Like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not dangerous to look at your computer. On the other hand, doing it every day for 30 years or 40 years, like, is going to produce pretty serious effects on the body. And so... The company is not interested in the health of the workers for their own sake. It's interested in their safety so that it can continue to exploit their labor, right? Like it, they are cheaper if they don't have health problems that because then they don't need, you know, a health insurance plan and this kind of stuff or whatever. I just kept thinking about biopolitics here and the ways in which like there's a kind of political logic behind um how like toby's description of how you need to get up and move every 10 minutes and there's a timing and regimentation of even the yeah. supposedly just intellectual labor so i felt like there could be an argument that this episode at least a little bit demonstrates that both kinds of labor are embodied and intellectual wow i love that a couple things that are related points that came to mind so in terms of that division I think we see the way with Madge, the gender component of it too, where for Michael being able to use the forklift and use the baler is a masculine thing. The blue collar work is he sees as masculine and he gets to be more of a man if he goes and does that work. But it's Madge who is another one who is qualified to do it and is better than him at it. In terms of the salaries and the getting paid more, it reminded me that actually Michael was barely paid more than Daryl. Right. One of those things where it has the 
image or like the kind of concept of class very much attached to it. But then when they actually find out what the difference is, if Daryl gets a raise, he'd be he'd make more than Michael made. And so that's kind of gotten adjusted with their raise. But if Michael's raise was 12 percent and Daryl's raise was, you know, within line with that, it's just sort of a a twist or a complication there that they're closer than um expected but i really really love this idea of the way that the body comes into the office that is supposed to be or thought to be about intellect and about the mind and the physicality of it which you know but it, but of course michael is told that it's nerf so nerf. this leads him to his uh you know death defying lesson but i the one thing i did think um, well, first, again, you know, I thought it was just there's just so many great lines in there. Like, um, uh, well, I like Daryl saying we do dangerous stuff. This is shenanigans, foolish yes. nerf ball. Um, <laughs> and I love uh, uh, Michael saying what nerf isn't cool anymore. And I thought <laughs> Steve Carell's acting in that when when Daryl walks out, it's a way that he registers on his face like hmm. humiliation or shame but also like denial and also like anger and also like formulating some kind of plan. I just love that. Um, he and, is an yeah. unbelievable actor, isn't he? He's, he's really impressive. It's, it, it's really good. Um, That's a great example of what he manages to convey with just his face. And on the one hand, it's like, you know, it's, it's comedy. He's this very goofy character, but he brings so much dimension to it. I also love this as a, um, what's the, what's the word for it? Like, uh, I'm not think coming up with the right word, but a mean thing to say to somebody <laughs> is that's so nerf. Like that is nerf ball. I think I want to start using that. Oh, I love it. Let's do it. Let's use it. Okay, let's use it on each other. So we've agreed that we're going to try to use the language of nerf in our day-to-day -day conversations. But I feel like I'd like to get a little more into what is it about nerf? Can we do a close reading of nerf? So I'm trying to think about what the, the connotations of this are. So it's nerf is always, it always mimics some other more quote, real kind of thing. So you have a Nerf football, but it's not as big or as solid as a football. It's that like kind of squishy, very specifically Nerf material. There are, um, you know, balls of different shapes, different sizes. There are guns, Nerf guns. So it's soft. It's more tame. At the same time, it enables you to do stuff that you couldn't do otherwise, like you couldn't shoot your friends with an actual machine gun. Mm -hmm. You can shoot them with this Nerf gun. Like I'm just looking at some pictures of them, you know, that load lots of Nerf bullets. You know, you can get like a right. Nerf magazine. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was just looking on the Wikipedia and in the 70s, their marketing slogan was throw it indoors. You can't damage lamps or break windows. You can't hurt babies or old people. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> it's like a perfect distillation of this. Like on the one hand, yeah, it's mimicking <clears throat> warfare basically, <laughs> or, you know, the football. Yeah. But like, man, the way they've gone. So as you say, like, like, you know, ultra guns or whatever. So, but on the other hand, it's like without any danger, without any risk. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, 
bringing that up there slogan from the 70s makes me think it would be really interesting to trace the history of Nerf and how their products have evolved because I remember them as a kid and I think there were guns but I feel like I remember more Nerf balls and other Nerf things like that and I definitely don't remember there being the level of machine gun that there is yeah and I'm like yeah anyway it's just so interesting uh, because of the uh, yeah on the one hand like we, we've moved away from like or there's more criticism of giving children like guns or gun like things that somebody on the street might mistake for a weapon and yet on the other hand it's also this like <laughs> yeah. it is that to the extreme although it's in neon colors and it's yeah um, there's an interesting distinction between the nerf gun and another toy gun because right. it's the bright colors like it's so clear it, in contrast to other toy guns this is so clearly not a real gun hmm would you be offended by this if if someone told you this is nerf ball would it hurt your feelings i don't think so i don't know i'd be like yeah i am i am nerf i don't know i would rather have comfort thank you like <laughs> see this would definitely hurt my feelings really you're so much more badass than me though but this is why you know because it would hurt my feelings i am going to weaponize it myself and i'm going to start using it on people so for you would it be like cutting to like a cutting like a kind of um trying to not frame it in gendered terms but like some sort of well like yeah is it emasculating or is it like kind of uh, diminishing of your power to say yeah yeah i think it's diminishing of strength diminishing of strength it is uh yeah, I think it's, I, I don't want to be called soft. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is like, I want to become soft. So <laughs> I'm transitioning into Nerfy. Uh... <laughs> Welcome to the Nerf Dome. But <laughs> Michael, Michael has a really valid question. What? So Nerf isn't cool anymore? Because Nerf was cool. It was cool. Yeah. It had a very athletic vibe, right? I guess. I mean... I don't know. Um, I think you are the expert on Nerf more than me. I, think. <laughs> I just am aspiring to become a Nerf expert because it really is pretty interesting. But uh, well, yeah. speaking of like other kinds of things from our childhood, I would mm-hmm. like to bring onto the scene the trampoline, which uh, <laughs> Michael gets from the giant big box toy store. Um and this was probably like my favorite line. There were a lot of them, but I like this one. You may be asking yourself, what am I doing on a trampoline? <laughs> well, I thought I'd bounce here for a while, relieve them some stress and then move on with my day. Not here's the plan, you know, and so forth. I just, oh my God, this whole thing. Um, And then the uh, part where he's like, nice side note, they might think, hey, I should have been nicer to Michael, but that's not why I'm doing this. <laughs> just uh perfection and um but i was wondering if you've ever did you ever spend much time on a trampoline i have had some trampoline experiences oh on the note you said about things from our childhood one of them seems to be saying not yes there totally so i like that i actually remember um i feel like a trampoline is something that is a classic fight between kids and parents where the kids really want and i think i probably did this right the kids really want a trampoline the parents know it's a terrible idea 
not only because they might get hurt, but more like it's a big expensive thing and it takes up a huge amount of your yard and all of that. Also, trampolines now, if you ever see trampolines in people's yards, it's got all the net around it. Yeah. Here's, the trampolines today are super nerf life. Yeah. Um, they have the big net around it. When we jumped, it didn't have the net. We could see there were the coils on the side where you could get your leg caught in it. Oh, yes. I remember actually jumping on a trampoline at a friend's house. I think this was in high school. And I jumped <laughs> high and just like kept going backward. I think I was trying to do a flip or something, but I kept going backward and landed on my back on the ground. Oh, fuck. And I was fine, but it was a bad moment. So what you're saying is kids these days are today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think rather than do like, you know, those those kinds of statements about kids today being softer, I think I'm just going to start calling them nerf. Yeah. So I just want to take a moment to distance myself from your opinions on this podcast and to say that that every week (laughs) in no way do I endorse the (laughs) statements of Megan uh, or or policies. But I do. I I was I have thought that or I was like, I remember one of the few times I was on a trampoline and like definitely hurt myself on the edge of it Mm -hmm. Uh, and the coils were exposed. And nowadays, yeah, I'm like, how does it how do they? How does this work? You know, um, but yeah. I have seen those clips of people at like trampoline parks or whatever. And I oh. got to say, that does look kind of fun, like bouncing around, falling does. home. Um, and that would have been a better choice for Michael to like sort of jump into a big thing of Nerf foam or something instead of the trampoline or the bouncy castle. How hilarious is the bouncy castle? This is unbelievable for our listening our listening community who does not watch the show. Michael, in order, let's see. So he has put the trampoline down. He's climb, He climbs up onto the roof. The trampoline is down in the parking lot. And then he later gets, who is it who tells him? Is it Dwight who tells him to get the bouncy castle? When does he make that decision? I guess it's after. So after to, the watermelon, I think. After the watermelon. So yeah, testing it out. So as he's up there on the roof, he looks down and... Dwight right away says, okay, let's do this thing. I'll go summon the troops. So he's ready to go. He's ready for Michael to jump off the roof and land on this trampoline. It is such an unbelievably horrible idea. Those shots, the roof is pretty high. So high. It is kind of a small target to land on. And also, best case scenario, he lands on it and flies off. Worst case scenario is he just goes directly to the concrete with no you know, bounce. I love Michael says, take apart the trampoline, stick it in the baler. And Dwight's like, we're yes. not allowed to use the baler. <laughs> um, he says, you know, get, get um sea monster or padge to do it. I yeah. think padge at that point. Um, always got I, a, little, a different name. Another thing I love is Michael, when he's ready to do it, uh, Dwight does his air guitar thing. Mm-hmm. And I love when Dwight is like hyped up and like, you know, ready to rock out. His air guitar is so good. So, so good. Oh, uh, oh go ahead. I was just going to say, as he's setting it up. Oh, I guess that's there. Cause the air guitar is when they're, they're ready to call the people out to see. Right. Yes. In his speech, when he, I just want to recognize when he says, Dwight, you ignorant slut. And 
that's another one of those lines that I've taken from the show that I enjoy as an insult. Dwight, you ignorant slut. Like just in totally absurd context. Do you know what that's from by any chance? No. Is it from something other than Michael Scott? Yes. So it oh is. Oh my God. I feel like I'm probably going to be in trouble. There's going to be some horrible history of it. Uh, no, it's from um, a Saturday Night Live sketch oh. in the 70s. Um, and I'm trying to like remember the details or pull it up. But basically it was like, uh, uh, yeah, here we go. Um, Dan Aykroyd's skit with Jane Curtin. And it was kind of set up like a point counterpoint um, news show. Uh, where they would like I guess argue about a subject or whatever um, and uh, anyway that was like one of his lines was like you know like supposedly they're having this like rational convert rational debate or whatever and he would be like Jane you ignorant slut um, <laughs> uh, so um, so yeah that's what he's referencing which makes sense given that uh, Michael is you know um always wanting to be a comedian and always kind of like you know yeah inhabiting that history yeah it's so funny and makes it work differently in applying it to a man instead of applying it to a woman. yeah yeah <laughs> that's true um before we get to the big climax of michael <laughs> maybe jumping or maybe not jumping or whatever mm-hmm. we should just say the other the subplot to the whole episode it has nothing to do with Andy actually really and it's all about um people in the office gambling they're betting yeah. they're taking bets on meaningless things like if we replace an apple that Creed is eating with a potato will he notice how long will Kelly go on talking about you know um her Netflix account which by the way what a flashback to the 2000s and like using the website to order your rank your netflix dvds and how they would come yeah. that yeah um they, i i just saw recently in the news that they have officially retired the dvd mailing yep. system yeah my um or jen's uh mom uh was very upset because she still oh, used I love it. That. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um but anyway yeah so the only connection i could make was kind of like the concept of risk and so, you know, what is or is not risky is related to what is, you know, to 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 gambling, right? And like kind of calculations of risk or calculations of probability, um, taking bets, et cetera. Uh, so that was like the kind of thematic connection. But also I thought about the, the Megan theory of character and, you know, we don't learn a too much or anything new, but it's just some funny affirmation of like, yeah, Kelly is you know, uh, monologues and is annoying, uh, to everybody. Um, Creed is a weirdo. Uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. Was there any others that they bet on? Ooh, it's escaping me. Uh, well, anyway, but, uh, well, they, well, they bet on whether or not Michael's going to jump. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, oh, the jelly beans. Uh, how many jelly beans are in there? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and that's how Kevin gets in to say, but Jim, it's unfair because you spend at Pam's desk hours and hours. One thing I, I enjoyed about this section too is that we get to see Kevin really shine. So Angela's always very mean to him about his math capabilities and his work as an accountant. 
But Kevin is actually really good at running numbers when he wants to be. Yeah, so he's that's true. Running, like, he's talking about all the percentages and, you know, putting different stakes on something. And if it's one to 10,000, and then he's dividing up the dollars that people get when they place their bets. It's like that when he plays poker too. He just, he gets in a mode and he is, he's good with the numbers. Yeah. I, I just love also that he's a gambler. Like I, I really enjoy yeah. his gambling addiction as a character trait. It's just really yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, yeah, Michael and Dwight do this performance. I thought about you here where I was like, in a way, Michael is trying to teach, right? And the lesson that he gets from talking with Pam is that like reading is not the way to go. You need visual aids. You need like a dra dramatization. And um, so basically, yeah, he gets up on the roof. He's ready to jump. He and Dwight pretend there's this back and forth about his depression, but the warehouse workers are not there. Dwight goes and gets them, brings them out so that Daryl in particular will witness Michael's, uh, you know, supposed depression and potential jump. Mm -hmm. What I find, you know, so funny about it is like, yeah, that Michael actually does start to express his depression. Mm -hmm. um, so initially he's joking and saying, or not joking, but performing, you know, the stress of my modern office has caused me into a depression. Um, depression is a serious illness. Um, you know, and they bring up statistics and suicides. Uh, but then as it goes on and and Pam realizes that he's going to jump, um, Daryl kind of talks to him and is trying to talk him down. Uh, yeah. and, he, and Michael says, what do I have to live for? And one of the funniest lines in the whole thing, um, he's like, what about Jan? Lovely, lovely, lovely Jan, man. It's going good, right? It's complicated with Jan. And I don't know where I stand or what I want. The sex isn't nearly as good as it used to be. <laughs> and so Daryl says he's brave uh, for, for just being Michael Scott. Um, uh, what did you make of this? Did you laugh? Was it funny? Did you have a help us out with your thoughts? I did. I, I thought I thought Daryl was great here. I mean, nobody ensures the safety of the office like Daryl does. And so I thought him taking, talking him through, and on the one hand, of course, it's underhanded kinds of compliments, like you're a very brave man. I mean, it takes courage just to be you, to get out of bed every single day, knowing full well you got to be you. But Michael takes it. So I'll say on the one hand, like Pam and Jim are kind of snickering next to him and like trying not to laugh a little bit. And on the one hand, yeah, what Daryl is saying, we know that it's like, it would be really hard to be you, Michael, because being you is terrible. And so it's kind of hurtful in that sense. But I don't know. At the same time, he is trying to help him and he is trying to get him off the roof. And he also kind of knows what will work on Michael. And it does. Michael asks him, do you really mean that? And Daryl says, I couldn't do it. I ain't that strong and I ain't that brave. Um, <laughs> and Michael asks, am I braver than you? So I. We, you know, we've got Daryl being the one ensuring safety at the beginning and at the end, and he locks it down. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I, did you, I don't know. Did you think that Daryl was mean or mocking him? Is he genuine? Like, what did you make of that? Like, uh, his tone in mm -hmm. saying, you know, your brave heart. 
Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of it's sort of mocking. Like it's not that that's not there, but it also feels like he's he's doing it in a way though where he's not making fun of him. It doesn't feel to me like he's making fun of him even though that is subtext and that is also there. It feels like he's genuinely trying to get Michael down on terms that will work for Michael. Yeah, that's right. You're right. I agree with that. That's I like that. Okay. That's fair. Cause I definitely had this initial feeling of like, man, he's just uh further pointing out how kind of pathetic Michael is. But yeah. I like that idea that it's a persuasive. Yeah. Cause I felt like there that's where you know, when Jim and Pam were kind of trying not to laugh, I felt like they were being mean about it. But he seemed to maintain this sincerity, even though it is ultimately negative. And he actually kind of gives, we, we talked about in the last episode, how he says, um, I taught Michael, or use that black man phrase I taught you. And so that idea of him giving Michael language that helps That's make right. him brave, and there's all kinds of weirdness about that and about Michael's desire to have his quote black man phrases. Um, but he actually does a subtle version of that here when he says, you braveheart man. Um, and following this African-American vernacular English pattern of dropping that to be verb that's in the middle there, just, just say you braveheart instead of you are braveheart. And then Michael takes that on and mirrors it and says, I braveheart. And so on the one hand, I mean, he kind of sounds like a jerk and he sounds like an idiot, but it also feels like this pattern in the relationship of Michael and Daryl, where Daryl will give him this language. And for Daryl, it both is funny. And so he gets some enjoyment out of it, out of playing with Michael that way. And at the same time, it does give Michael strength. <laughs> like it gives Michael confidence and yeah. he, goes, he gets a raise and he's up there and he decides he's Braveheart and he gets off the roof. And I, yeah, another, I mean, there are just so many great little lines, but that gets reflected in his final thing where he says, am I a hero? I really can't say, but yes, just <laughs> which cracked me up. Um, but I like that. I like that read. And it's a, and it, also this is an episode, a great example of like Michael putting on a show and trying to teach a lesson. And whenever he does yeah. that, I always think of you because I always think you like his, um, his I don't know presentation methods or his pedagogy um but when Jim says that uh Michael's gonna kill himself by or he's gonna kill himself pretending to kill himself mm -hmm. I thought oh my god that is like I don't know if we ever get to see how Michael Scott dies in this show probably not but if if in the long arc of the narrative we could imagine how Michael Scott dies that's how I imagine it you know it's like through some bumbling ill-fated ill ill-conceived um <laughs> effort uh and also we get to see everybody's different attempts to persuade him to come down so as you said daryl is the most effective pam's like i have a present for you which is so funny and then dwight says it's a reply q1 expo female robot <laughs> I confess I thought about you during that and I was like, is Tegan going to know about this? I looked it up and it is real and uh, and it just makes me laugh that, that Dwight like is so specific. You so know, specific. Um, the, I'll say the other point I thought about you is when 
the same line that you just read where Michael says, am I a hero? I really can't say, but yes. Yeah. And they contrasted with your point about Dwight being a hero specifically because he does not own the label when he does something heroic. And he says, no, I'm not a hero. The other guys are heroes. Yes. <laughs> has a chance to say, no, I'm not a hero. Some other guy is a hero. And he says, yeah, I am. Suggesting oh. that he's not a hero, according right. to your theory of heroism. That's right. All right. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, in that same thing when he says an office is as safe as the people in it. Um, hmm. I felt like that was a nice. I don't know. If, 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 I wonder if there were scenes cut with Andy because like hmm. Andy's return is a nice question of like, are we safe with hmm. this guy here? But it's Michael who is the, the yeah. least safe of all. Anyway, I just thought that was fun. Yeah, very. Well, what do you think? Should we go to the Dundies? Let's go to Chili's. Okay. Why don't you start us off tonight? Um, well, look, it's a rare event, but it happens. And for the um, uh, Mental Health Awareness Award, it goes to Michael Scott. <laughs> now, you might be shocked and you're saying, what? Why? You know, all he does is put people in danger. Maybe. But... Michael is, I believe, ahead of the curve in advocating for thinking about mental health in the workplace. And he could have picked other things, you know, uh, uh, for safety or whatever. And I liked how much he's talking about depression as like a, as a stress of the modern life, the modern office. Anyway, it just, uh, yeah, so I'm giving it to him for that. Shining an important spotlight on mental health. Um and then I had a, I had a, I went back and forth of like, who's the best person to reward here? You know, I thought about Jim, Pam and Daryl all being ones who get him down. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this may not surprise you, but I'm giving it to Dwight as the, uh, um, this is the, uh, uh, I don't know, presentation helper award. <laughs> Uh, I just love Dwight in this episode running around yeah, yeah. every whim that, that Michael has and um and he's kind of like, yeah, okay, go for it. You know, like he's very uh supportive. He is. And he uh, so I like that. Great work in this episode for sure. And I feel it's been a little while maybe since I've acknowledged Dwight's importance. So there it is. It's last episode at least. <laughs> So I am going to give one Dundee tonight that is the Safety Hero Award, and it goes to Daryl Philbin. I feel like I have already explained. I think, I mean, Daryl, from the Baylor to dealing with Michael and the forklift to getting him down off the roof, he has a challenging job to actually have to protect people from the real physical non-nerf dangers of the office, and particularly when it is Michael Scott. And I think he just does an outstanding job. I mean, he needed to be recognized, for sure. He did to be recognized. Um, yeah, I feel like we're getting a really good, we're getting more Daryl in the last couple episodes. And I, I was so happy about that. I was like, oh, this picks up right where we left off. Yeah. Last yeah. episode, basically. It does. They've been through a lot together recently. Just one other, this is an honorable mention. This is not really a Dundee, but there's a point when uh, Kelly says something to Sea Monster. This is when they're up and uh, they're sea talking monster. about 
Uh, Michael's reading the information about the risks of office life, and one of them is the sedentary lifestyle. And Michael mispronounces, misreads it as sedimentary lifestyle. Yes, yeah. You know, I always love those. I but do. Kelly, so Sea Monster is then kind of making fun of him for this being the office problem. Kelly says something like, "Shut up, Sea Monster! You weigh like a thousand pounds." And then I thought Sea Monster's response was brilliant. I bet you'd like to swim with this steam monster, wouldn't you? <laughs> it was just, it shut her down so perfectly. And I, I just thought that was a brilliant comeback. So a little recognition for that. Fabulous. Well, we are heading forward into uh, season three, episode 21, product recall, um, which we will be talking about next time. I'm excited to see what gets recalled mm, it's gonna be interesting well thanks everybody for listening thank you for listening bye